LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Rupert Sheldrake who joins us to discuss his latest book, Science and Spiritual Practices. In this pioneering work, Sheldrake shows how science helps validate seven practices on which all religions are built and which are part of our common human heritage. Meditation, gratitude, connecting with nature, relating to plants, rituals, singing and chanting and pilgrimage in holy places. The effects of spiritual practices are now being investigated scientifically as never before, and many studies have shown that religious and spiritual practices generally make people happier and healthier. Sheldrake summarises the latest scientific research on what happens when we take part in these practices and suggests ways to explore them for ourselves. For those who are religious, science and spiritual practices will illuminate the evolutionary origins of their own traditions and give a new appreciation of their power. For the non-religious, It shows how the core practices of spirituality are accessible to all, even if they do not subscribe to a religious belief system. This is a book for anyone who suspects that in the drive towards radical secularism, something valuable has been left behind. By opening ourselves to the spiritual dimension, we may find the strength to live more wholesome and fulfilling lives. Hello and welcome, Rupert, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, I'm pleased to be with you. Rupert, today we're going to be talking a little bit about your latest book. It's entitled Science and Spiritual Practices. Before we dive into all that, just tell listeners a little bit about your background and your work in general. Well, I'm a biologist. Um, I um, studied biology as an undergraduate. I also studied philosophy at Harvard after I'd been at Cambridge as an undergraduate. Um, I worked on plants, I've worked in agriculture, I spent seven years in India. Um, I've worked on uh, unexplained abilities of animals and people. I wrote a book called Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home, another one on the sense of being stared at and other aspects of the extended mind. Um, My previous book was called The Science Delusion, and it's about the dogmas that dominate science and, and in my view, restrict it and hold back free inquiry. Uh, And this most recent book, uh, Science and Spiritual Practices, brings together different sides of my life, my life as a scientist and also my life as a practicer of spiritual practices. So how would you briefly describe the book? For example, for me, someone's already asked me a couple of times, uh, what's it about? And I've said, well, it's how spiritual practices of various types can have positive effects on your physical and mental well-being and these are scientifically verifiable and and increasingly so 
Yes. I mean, what I'm dealing with in the book are seven different spiritual practices, very different, really, um, all of which have been investigated scientifically and all of which have been shown to be good for you. If you Basically, there's now a lot of evidence that people who have religious or spiritual practices tend to be happier, healthier, and live longer. So these have very positive effects. So what I talk about is the practices themselves, their history, um, their effects on physiology, well-being, uh, brains, and so forth, health. Um, and I end each chapter with a couple of suggestions of how to do them if anyone wants to try them for themselves. One thing that's a theme that's kind of uh, run throughout your work and in some senses has kind of overshadowed it a little bit is the notion of um, atheism in science. That is to say that modern science is, uh, there is no place for emotion there. It should be dispassionate, detached, objective. But in fact, scientists cannot avoid to some extent or other bringing their own subjectivity into their work. Uh, their own experiences, their own worldview. And this is something that has to be taken into account. And certainly I remember the TED talk, well, let's just call it debacle, for example, in, involving the talk that you gave there. And we saw all of that emotion and, how can I put it, prejudice coming into play. And this is not to say that somehow that we should be aiming for a science that is completely free of human subjectivity. I'm not sure that's entirely possible, but it, we just shouldn't pretend that it isn't a thing that scientists bring baggage, shall I say, to the table. I think it's more important just to be aware of that as a possibility. Well, yes. I mean, there, there are two or three different issues here. One is that, of course, scientists are people. But for since the 19th century, they've tried to pretend, at least in their writing style, that they're not people. Um, you know, that's why there was a fashion for a long time of the passive voice. Instead of saying, I took a test tube, uh, they'd write, a test tube was taken, um, as if all these things were just unfolding in front of the scientist who was a detached observer. I think now there's the sociology uh, of science, the philosophy of science, and science and technology studies have all shown What's well, obvious that scientists are people, they have prejudices, they have emotions, they have ambitions, they have fears, um, um, they have rivalries, and so on. Um, so that's just saying scientists are human, which is, of course, obvious, really. Um, um, but it, it does rather dent this idea that scientists are completely objective, like kind of automata, just simply registering facts. They're not. They have ideas, they have hypotheses, they want things to be true, they tend to notice things that fit their beliefs more than those that don't. Um, and recently it's turned out that a great deal of the scientific literature, at least half of published papers in most subjects, turn out not to be replicable because what scientists do is publish their best results which fit their theory best uh, and tend to ignore the results that don't. Um, all of this leads to a kind of very subjective uh, element to science um, but the point that I'm more concerned with in my book, The Science Delusion, is the, the kind of dogmatic um, framework, which is not just individual in scientists, it's institutionalized. The official doctrine of science at the moment is the materialist worldview, 
the doctrine that the only reality is matter and that matter is unconscious. So the universe is made up of unconscious matter, uh, which has no purpose. There's no purpose or direction in evolution. It's just blind chance and necessity. Um, and this worldview, the materialist worldview, is not something proved by science. It's something assumed. Um, and it's part of the standard paradigm or assumption on which science is currently based. A lot of scientists don't actually believe it, but they usually have to pretend to believe it when they're at work um, just to fit in and to make sure they get their career advancement and um, get grants and that kind of thing. Uh, you mentioned your book there, Science Delusion, and that, the title of that was somewhat a response to Richard Dawkins' book, the God Delusion, which of course was a you know huge selling tome. Uh, I remember seeing adverts for it all over the place, you know, on the sides of buses and in train stations. Uh, so a lot of people read that book. That of course reflects some of the dogmatic thinking that you've just been referring to. Um, do I remember reading something about you agreeing to be interviewed by Richard Dawkins? And then at some point you felt that he or his people had kind of moved the goalposts a bit and you decided that it was no longer what you'd originally agreed to. Um, perhaps you can recall that, that incident better than I can. Oh, yes. Well, the thing is Richard Dawkins personifies this particularly dogmatic, um, materialist, atheist view. I mean, I know a lot of atheists and many of them are very good people. Um um, so this is not the problem isn't that he's an atheist. The problem is that he thinks other scientists ought to be atheists too, and that this is science. It isn't. It's his personal opinion. And he um, is also a so-called skeptic. Um, I, I would say a dogmatic skeptic. I mean, skepticism is a good thing, but dogmatic skepticism is the attempt to dismiss anything that doesn't fit with your view of the world. And he has a view of the world, a materialist view, that the mind is nothing but the brain, it's inside the head, and is nothing but the activity of the brain. Therefore, things like telepathy, psychic phenomena, um, are impossible, because if your uh, mind is nothing but something happening in your brain, then your thoughts can't possibly affect someone hundreds of miles away, as they seem to in telepathy. Um, so... He asked to come and interview me, or at least a TV company asked to come and interview me about my research on telepathy, particularly telephone telepathy, on which I've done many experiments which show that people really can tell um, which uh, when someone's about to ring them. In, in our tests, they have four potential callers. One of them selected at random, and each test they have to guess who's calling, and they score well above the chance level of 25%. Anyway... Um, he, uh, the TV company, asked if they could come and interview me about this research. And I'd seen his previous Channel 4 program called The Root of All Evil, which was against religion. It was extremely polemical, completely one-sided. Um, and so I said to them, no, well, I don't really want to take part in another of his debunking programs. Um, you know, it's a completely polemical, it's one-sided. Why would I want to be part of that? And so they said, oh, well, he's changed. He's really interested in the evidence. He wants to discuss the evidence with you. Um, um, and that's what he wants to come and see you about. 
Um, so I said, well, if that's the case, if he really wants to talk about evidence, then put that in writing, and I'll agree to see him. So he put it in writing, came to see me. And when he arrived, it turned out he wasn't in the slightest interest in the evidence. He wanted to trap me into saying something silly so he could put it on his program and debunk me in my research. Um, so when I said to him, let's just look at the evidence, that's what we've met to do, um, he said, no, that's not what we're here for. I'm, I don't want to discuss the evidence. So I said, well, why not? He said, it's too difficult. And I said, well, most people can understand it. He said, take too long. And I said, a few minutes. Um, and he said, anyway, it's not what this program's about. So then the director said, cut, and the cameras stopped. Um, so I said, well, what is it about? And I said, I made it very clear I didn't want to be part of another low-grade debunking program. And he said, it's not a low-grade debunking program. It's a high-grade debunking program. <laughs> um, so... Um, it turned out it was another of his polemics and that I'd been severely misled. I'd only agreed to see him on the grounds it was a discussion of evidence. And when he told me he wasn't interested in the evidence, which I think is a very, very unscientific attitude, um, I said, well, then in that case, you're here under false pretenses. So I had to ask him and the TV crew to leave. So it was a shame. In a way, I mean, I'd be very happy to have a proper discussion with Richard Dawkins about evidence, but... On the few occasions we've met and uh, the possibility has been there, he's refused to do it. So I, I think it's an example, you see, of someone who's, it, who, for whom science is a matter of prejudice and dogma. Um, and that's not the way science ought to be. And I think that uh, it's particularly bad in the sense that he was professor of the public understanding of science at Oxford. He was not professor of biology, he was professor of public understanding of science. And I think this dogmatism gives completely the wrong view about science. So I think it's counterproductive. Yes, well, it's not as if this is all, the, you know, either side of this discussion and debate is all kind of out there and doesn't really have any relevance in people's day-to-day -day lives because we increasingly have been seeing, what well, some would say for several centuries, you know, since the scientific revolution, the, the ill effects of this kind of mechanistic thinking of denying the evidence of our own senses and, and subjectivity and a, a craving for, you know, all the data to be in on just a hard and fast picture of what reality actually is. No more questions, no more doubt. And it sort of pushes out the possibility of, of this, it's like not knowing as if we could, as if our brains are somehow, you know, have evolved to have a, be able to grasp the universe. And we're just all of us in our own way kind of searching about in the darkness for, you know, a sense of possibility or meaning or purpose. And sometimes we feel a bit closer to it than others. But the bottom line is that, as you say, the, the mechanistic reduction and reductionism it is a paradigm. And we are increasingly living in a world where this, the denial that I've just spoken of, it's not fulfilling us. It's, we crave meaning and purpose in our lives and a complete denial of it, or even the possibility of it being, has been devastating, really. And fortunately, I would say at this time, there's certainly some signs that that there may be change in that area. Well, yes. I mean, if we have a worldview that says the universe is unconscious, purposeless, meaningless, um, and you know, when we die, that's it, and there's no, uh, there's nothing beyond, um, all religions, all spiritual. Uh, paths are pointless and illusory. Um, it's a d deeply depressing point of view. 
And I think it's no surprise that in modern societies, which have become very secularized and very influenced by this um, materialist worldview, then depression is the commonest form of mental illness. It's endemic. Um, and, uh, you know, it's an isolating uh, view. We're all isolated in the privacy of our skulls. Uh, we're separated from each other. It's a deeply depressing worldview. Now, it often goes hand in hand with a progressive worldview, the idea that we're part of progress driven by science and technology, um, which gives a somewhat more optimistic tinge um, to the whole thing. Um, but I think without a sense of purpose and meaning in life, without a sense of connection to something bigger than ourselves, it's very human for, difficult for human beings to thrive. And that's exactly why I think spiritual practices are so important, and that's why I've written this uh, new book. Yes, well, let's um, turn to talking about some of those spiritual practices. As you mentioned, there are, there are a number. We may not be able to get to all of them in the time that we have, but one that resonates with me uh, most and which many people will be familiar with, if not in practice and certainly in theory, is what we could generally um, put under the umbrella of, of meditation or mindfulness um, because of the nature of the society that we're in, our modern techno-industrial civilization uh, we find it very difficult to be still uh, there is constant sensory stimulation all around us 24 7 we live in this interconnected world that we hear so much about all the time uh, but there's great power to be had in the ability to still the mind to become aware of our thoughts and from that the realization that we are not actually our thoughts and i think that your chapter speaks a lot about zen and there's a lot of talk about meditation and mindfulness in pop science these days. And in fact, for every article I read about um, this is something that we should do in our modern fast-paced world to try and become more grounded. It has these benefits, physical and mental. Uh, I also see articles about the so-called uh, dangers of mindfulness. In fact, I mean, in some of the headlines using that word, danger. So as with a lot of things that go round in our society, whether it's to do with diet or exercise or whatever it happens to be, we've got a bit of a schizophrenic attitude in it's like sort of kind of like all or nothing. Um, but I think in general, meditation, let's face it, has got an extremely long history that seems to have some form in a religious or spiritual context or otherwise going back as far in human history as we can see. Yes, well... Um when I saw first started meditating a long time ago, in 1971, I uh, started with Transcendental Meditation. At that time, I was an atheist. I, part of my scientific education had sort of indoctrinated me with this atheist worldview. And uh, the attraction of meditation then was that it was a spiritual practice that didn't require any belief. You didn't have to believe anything. You just had to try it and see what happened. And I tried it, and it, I found it very calming and um, helpful and it really balanced my life in a way that I found very positive. Um, then I, after some years after that I had a job in India working in an agricultural research institute. So I did very, tried various forms of meditation, other forms of Hindu meditation uh, and Sufi meditation because Sufis also have a meditative tradition within Islam. And um, 
And then I discovered um, a Christian ashram run by someone called Father Bede Griffiths, a British Benedictine monk. Um, and I actually spent two years living in that ashram in the end. Uh, I wrote my first book there, A New Science of Life. And there I took up a Christian form of meditation uh, using a mantra. Um, and uh, I've meditated on and off ever since. When I had young children, I couldn't meditate because it's rather hard with kids rushing around the house. Um, but it's very much part of my life. And um, many people who meditate find that it has this calming effect on their life. Uh, they find, as I've found, and everyone who meditates finds that they're not their thoughts. The thoughts pass through the mind as one concentrates either on becomes aware of the breathing or sensations in the body, that's the mindfulness type, or the mantra repeating a simple word or phrase, the mantra type. These are both ways of meditating that provide a focus for the mind away from the constant stream of thoughts. And so one's somewhat detached from these thoughts and can see them come and go um, and becomes aware that one's mind is not simply the thoughts one's thinking There's, they're going through the mind but the mind is bigger than those thoughts and uh, in all traditions of meditation within various religions Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, Islam uh, Judaism in Kabbalistic uh, mystical Judaism um, the point of meditation is really that the ground of one's own consciousness is connected to the ground of the consciousness of God that Meditation is a way of connecting with this greater consciousness, not just a way of calming oneself down and being able to do better at work and succeed better in business and so forth, um, but uh, connecting with the very basis of all reality. Um, the Hindus have a metaphor for this, which I think is particularly striking, which is that if you look at the moon reflected in lots of buckets of water, in each bucket of water, the moon uh, seems separate from all the other moons, uh, yet they're all reflections of the same moon. And, and that's like our minds. Everyone has a mind, their own consciousness. Um, it looks as if they're separate, but um, they're all derived from and part of the greater consciousness from which everything comes. So that's um, the main reason why people traditionally did meditation Nowadays, it's more ambiguous. Some people do it with this uh, deeper religious motive. Some do it in a purely secular context. Um, um, so, uh, you know, it can be done in both ways. And one of the points I make in my book is that um, these spiritual practices can be done by people who are not religious as well as people who are religious. People who are religious have a larger framework within which they interpret them. People who are not religious... Um, prefer to do them in a, in a secular context, and that's all right too. But we live in an extraordinary time where it's possible to do it either way. Um, but however one does these spiritual practices, I think it's better than not doing them. Yes, exactly. And you mentioned the, you know, doing it in a non-religious context, and I think meditation is a good example of how people can reap tangible benefits without having a religious bone in their body without ever having engaged with any type of formal religion or even informal spirituality and that says something quite profound in itself 
that the practice of meditation and, and other related uh, practices ca- can have these tangible effects on the mind and thus they're therefore through the body and that actually reminds us of another phenomenon which we could loosely call mind over matter some people will, uh, will often experience this in their life through something like a placebo effect or perhaps the benefit of um, going through a particularly positive phase of their life and everything seems to be flowing or perhaps they have the opposite effect endless along the lines of what I was mentioning mentioning earlier about mindfulness being written about in pop science books and articles. We have the so-called power of positive thinking, which has been around for a long time. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that as well. If people take it too superficially, for example, that well-known book, The Secret, is widely misunderstood, maybe possibly even by the author. But nevertheless, that our minds, uh, the state of them, content, what flows through there, can affect our own bodies and the material reality around us. The positive thinking idea, this is not to advocate mindlessness because you actually make the point in your book that some negative thoughts are necessary and ultimately positive because they perhaps move us to action. Yes. Well, I I think positive thinking is um, a kind of form of secularized prayer, really. In, in prayer, which I don't discuss in this book, uh, uh, I discuss meditation but not prayer, which is a separate activity, a different one really. Um, in most religious traditions, the prayer is, if it's praying for something, petitionary prayer, then in, it's put in the context of the greater good. In the pro- prototypic Christian prayer, um, it says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Um, Our Father who art in heaven, um, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And then it goes on to other things, but it's put in the context of the kingdom of God coming first, the the, uh, reign of peace and brotherhood and and, um, love. Um, But positive thinking is mostly about getting something for yourself, success in love and business. so it's again it's and and it's not based on the idea that power is coming from god it's coming from one's own mind um so in that sense it's a reduced form or a secularized form of prayer um <clears throat> i think that the uh, it can work it can have effects and we know as you said that the mind affects the body and this is the basis of the placebo effect um in, in the chapter in my book on pilgrimage, um, you know, I'm talking about some of the benefits, the healing effects of pilgrimage that it can have. For example, at Lourdes in France, with the famous healing shrine and the healing well, the Holy Spring at Lourdes in the Pyrenean foothills. Um, a lot of people go there, and some of them are cured of really severe diseases in a way that appears miraculous. Um, now, the skeptics say, well, that's nothing but the placebo effect. But really, the point is, what's the difference? The placebo, placebo effect happens when somebody hopes they're going to get better, that they believe that they're doing something that will make them get better, and when they're surrounded by supportive people who want them to get better and who are helping them. Those are the conditions under which the placebo effect happens in clinical trials. Um, now, if someone goes on a pilgrimage to Lourdes, they go with a group of people, they're going with the hope and the expectation that they'll get better. When they get there, they're surrounded by supportive people. 
there's stories of all sorts of people who've been cured there. Um, there's, um, you know, the sense of support and prayer from other people and um, uh, this general sense of positivity, expectation. Um, and these are exactly the conditions that would unleash the placebo effect. So if people do get better, you could say, yes, well, that's the placebo effect. You could also say, it's an answer to prayer. Um, and it would be hard to say one answer's right and the other's wrong. If prayer is able to create placebo effects and therefore help people to get better, then it works. Um, and if people who don't believe in praying and don't do it and don't go on the pilgrimage to Lord or don't do anything similar to try and make themselves uh, help themselves get better, then they may not get better. So it works and it's doing good. Um, so I think this is a, you know, an important point. The placebo effect now means that everyone agrees that our attitudes, our expectations can affect our health and the healing process. Um, and one of the things in medicine um, is doing things in a way that gives us the maximum benefit of the placebo effect as well as the any effect the medications may have on their own or other treatments. Well, Let me just say a little bit more about pilgrimage while I'm on the subject, uh, Greg, which is that um, the pilgrimage was a huge thing all over Britain uh, until the Reformation. Everyone knows about the Canterbury Tales of Chaucer in the 14th century, um, pilgrims telling each other stories on the way to Canterbury. Pilgrimages all over uh, Britain um, and indeed all over Europe. Um, the Protestant Reformation suppressed these pilgrimages um, in Protestant countries, um, and I think it left a great void in people's uh, minds and souls and hearts. Um, I think that's why the British invented tourism, and which I think is best seen as a kind of secularized pilgrimage. Um, and I think one of the great paradigm shifts that are going on at the moment is the shift back from tourism to pilgrimage. There's a remarkable revival of pilgrimage going on in Europe at the moment, the best known being the pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela in Spain. Um, but here in Britain, um, there's an organization called the British Pilgrimage Trust, which is reviving the ancient pilgrimage routes in Britain on foot. And this is a swelling movement. It's it's growing. Um, it's only this particular organizations only been going two years, but already the number of people going on pilgrimage in Britain is dramatically increasing. Um, and for anyone who's interested, there's a really good website, BritishPilgrimage.org, uh, where you can learn about various routes in Britain. There's more than 30 different routes that are described on the website. And um, they're mainly trying to reopen the ancient, the old way to Canterbury from Winchester and Southampton, uh, which goes over the South Downs, um, and takes about 18 days, uh, so that people in Britain who want to go on a pilgrimage don't feel they need to go to Spain, they can do it right here. And it's not only a great way of connecting with historically holy places, but also, of course, being outdoors in nature, connecting with the land, connecting with the spirit of the land um, and it's a very healthy and healing experience a very transformative experience for many people i personally feel that i've seen reflections 
of this kind of um, yearning for to, to to make a pilgrimage of some kind in a lot of the popular fantasy that's been out there in you know in pop culture. I mean, obviously, Lord of the Rings is nothing new. Those books were written a long time ago, but it was only it's only in the last couple of decades that those have exploded in there when the technology allowed them to do so in in you know popular modern cinema that was accessible by millions of people and in the idea of a mythic quest that you see in in, in fantasy for me reflects this yearning to, to 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 have this sort of like meaningful transformative journey and as you say you've got a whole section of the book dedicated to the power and uh, positive benefits of pilgrimage now you mentioned being out within nature and you have a section in the book also uh, and it's called more than human nature that very much looks at the separation from nature that we currently labor under certainly most of us in the west and in, in industrial civilization separation from nature and from each other and in fact from ourselves if you want to extend the metaphor if you look at it deeply you can trace the causes of a lot of conflict from this separation, uh, say whether it's from nature, from each other, from ourselves, and how we regard, you know, what our view is of ourselves and other people, other creatures and nature at large, and the disregard that is there kind of facilitates, if not makes inevitable, a lot of the, the conflict and the destruction and degradation that we see. So, the chapter in your book is emphasizing the positive benefits of reconnecting in all the ways that I've just mentioned. Very much so, yes. And I think it's, you see, our whole culture is split. As I point out in, in that chapter, the, um, there's a sense in which many of us have connections with nature as children. Uh, this is a theme that the romantic poet William Wordsworth wrote about in his famous poem, Odes on intimations of immortality in early childhood. Um, the sense of connection with nature being part of something much bigger than ourselves. Um, then uh, we become more and more separated from it. And our scientific worldview, which is imparted to people in the course of their education, which says that nature is nothing but inanimate mechanisms made up of unconscious matter, that view, which I, we talked about earlier, um, is something that is the official worldview of our whole civilization at school, at university, in work, in industry, in business, in the media, in um, politics. Nature is just there as raw materials for us to exploit for economic growth and human progress. Um, but the reaction against that, which set in in the late 18th century, uh, gave rise to the Romantic movement, and the Romantics were saying, no, it's, we're not just machines, nature's not just a machine, we have feelings, emotions, um, we're connected with nature, we feel these connections when we're in nature. Um, and this was mostly expressed through Romantic poetry. And I think that our culture is completely split. Um, most people at work go along with the mechanistic worldview because that's the official orthodoxy and that's what business and education are all about. But um, especially at weekends and in the evenings and on holiday, uh, people revert to a completely different view of nature, seeing it as alive and themselves connected with it, the more romantic view of nature, which is why the great cities of the Western world are clogged with cars on Friday evenings as millions of people try to get back to nature in a car. Um, 
And a lot of people who spend their lives, their careers, exploiting nature, trying to get rich, don't get rich because, don't want to get rich because they hate nature. They want to get rich because they love nature and they think if they make enough money they can buy a little place in the country away from it all and go on retreats to a beautiful cottage in an unspoiled village with their family and their friends. So it's a completely split attitude that we've got in our culture. Um, I think that this connection with nature is very essential for our well-being. Uh, there are now lots of children who hardly ever go outdoors because they're on screens all the time. Um, it's a kind of crisis in, in our civilization. Uh, but lots of people still do go outdoors. And I think that this is um, really essential. And that's why uh, things like parks are so important in cities and national parks and the countryside. And we're blessed in England by having our network of footpaths, which we tend to take for granted. But when I travel in uh, the United States or Canada, for example, um, I become painfully aware of how this system doesn't operate there. Um, you, you can see a beautiful bit of countryside in the United States and try and go for a walk, and within a hundred yards you come up to barbed wire with signs saying, posted, keep out, private property. Um, no footpaths. Here in Britain, even though we have a lot of private property, there are these ancient rights of way, so you can walk over the countryside through fields and woods um, without having to own the land or without it having to be a national park, which means the whole of our countryside is wonderfully available to us. And um, it's uh, one of the great advantages of living here in Britain. Um, so I think that we can revision the way we relate to nature, reconnect. Um, and one of the exercises I suggest is something that was I learned from a man called John Young, an American who's a tracker, who uh, learns how to track animals, um, is a very simple exercise, just having a, a place where you sit for about 20 minutes every day, if possible. And if it's in the same place, in the woods or by a river or outdoors or just in the garden, um, then you get to know the changing seasons and by the time you've been there for about a quarter of an hour, the birds and the animals get used to you and start behaving normally. Uh, and you feel immersed in the landscape, in the natural world, um, uh, at different seasons of the year. It's a really good and very simple way of uh, reconnecting with the natural world, or what I call, using a phrase from the ecologist David Abram, uh, the more-than-human world. Okay, well, as mentioned, there's a number of sections in the book dealing with different spiritual practices, and in the time that we have allotted, uh, we can't really cover all of it, but perhaps we could close off by just saying a little bit about two of the other sections that we could perhaps tie together somehow. One is rituals and the presence of the past, and for me, I found quite a lot of common ground, certainly in my own mind, in my own experience, with the section that you devote to singing, chanting, and the power of music. Yes, well, singing and chanting are part of every human culture, um, and are probably very ancient. A lot of people now think that singing evolved before speaking, um, and and singing together um, brings people literally into resonance with each other. Um, and when you think about it, 
uh, all traditional religions, all traditional cultures have had singing together as a vital part of them. Think of tribes in Africa or in New Guinea or in Australia or wherever. Uh, they sing together, they dance together, and they, they make music together. And in all religious traditions, this is part of it. I mean, go to church on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening, and you sing with other people who are part of the community. But if you don't go to church, and if you don't join a choir, then you don't usually sing with other people. And it's a paradox of our society. We're saturated with music, but as in a passive way. There's radios, there's, there's, there's sort of record players, there's every kind of um, uh, music on computers, iPods, and so on. Every kind of music pervades our society. Um, but most people don't sing anymore uh, because they don't, they're not in a situation where they're with others and have this form of connection through song. Um, so this is a very vital thing that we can recover. And one way of doing it is in families or with groups of friends, but people often feel self-conscious about that. Uh, another way is to join a community choir. And I think the fact there's been a resurgence of community choirs is a symptom of the fact that people feel this need and uh, and they want to sing together, and indeed they can. Um, I myself um, just simply go to church on Sundays. I like going to church, and wherever I am, I do that. I'm an Anglican, so I usually go to Church of England churches. Um, I go to other denominations too. Um, but this is the simplest possible way of making singing an integra integral part of one's life. Um, I find it um, really important to do that. My wife, Jill Purse, um, teaches singing and chanting, one reason I feel so strongly about it, and she has a wonderful way of teaching people in her workshops of how to chant together. Even people who feel they can't sing uh, can chant, because chanting is much simpler than singing. It's simpler tunes, repetitive tunes. And, and many people find they can recover their voice through going to her workshops. It has a very healing effect. In fact, the workshops are called the healing voice. Um, this also plays a part in rituals. All um, religions have rituals. All societies have them. There are national ones, like the American Thanksgiving dinner. Um, and these are ways of bringing people together in a community um, and connecting them with all those who've done it before. Um, so this, again, is a form of spiritual practice which is found in every culture all over the world. Uh, but many people in our own society have lost connection with this. I think losing connection with these spiritual practices impoverishes life, and uh, regaining that connection, conversely, enriches life. And as I show in my book, it's quite easy to do it, and most of these practices cost nothing. So I feel that all our lives can become uh, better, more satisfying, and um, through feeling more connected, we can also... Uh, do more for other people makes us feel more generous um, if we feel ourselves to be more connected uh, and the common feature of all these spiritual practices meditation um, gratitude connecting with more than human nature relating to plants singing and chanting rituals and pilgrimage all seven practices i discuss in my book they're all about creating 
a greater sense of connection with that which is greater than ourselves and with each other. And um, that, I think, is something that makes us happier and healthier and, as I say, uh, more able to help other people as well. Well, Rupert, just a closing thought. Um, you mentioned a couple of moments ago things that we may have lost, lost touch with, and certainly as positive as your book is, it does um, reflect on those things and suggest ways that we can regain connection. And certainly, if we take the idea of a take the idea seriously of a sort of collective species memory and the role that past trauma or travails may play in where we find ourselves now. Um, think of like the work of Jung and Freud, for example, in terms of like collective unconscious. Um, if we then look at the idea of habit forming, uh, for example, this might overlap with some of your work on morphic resonance. And if we then think about you know the, where we've come from, where we are now, and where we might be headed, and also emerging ideas about neuroplasticity and how human nature is is malleable. I think there's a lot of cause for optimism there that really the future is what what we make of it and that there's always the possibility of moving forward in a positive way and I think that's quite contrary to a lot of the culture that we're currently immersed in which is incredibly negative and nihilistic and really sees us as a species heading down the tubes and I think that all or any of the practices that you speak about in your book can help us regain some sort of balance within ourselves as individuals, uh, within families and communities, and that can have ripple effects going outwards. And as I mentioned towards the top of the interview, this is not mindless. It's not la-la, happy-clappy, head-in-the-clouds nonsense. The whole point, again, just to reiterate, is there is a scientific basis for this. It's measurable, testable. It's just perhaps not widely spoken about at the minute. Yes, I agree. Well, it, and I hope it will be more widely spoken about, and not just spoken about, but actually practiced, which is why in my book, Science and Spiritual Practices, I show 14 different ways in which people can do these uh, practices, two for each uh, kind of practice, two methods that people can use. And the extraordinary thing, really, is that they're free. It's, anyone can do it, and it's free. So this is open to everyone. It's not at all elitist, and um, anyone can take part. And I think that really is good news. Well, Robert, as you just said, we've been discussing today your latest book, Science and Spiritual Practices. Uh, before we sign off, perhaps you'd like to share with listeners details of your website, um, any forthcoming publications or events or anything else you'd like to put out there. Okay, thank you. Well, um, my website is called sheldrake.org, and it has a lot of information there, a lot of links to talks I've given, books I've re uh, written, a link to a recent dialogue I had with Russell Brand, which was very stimulating and um, has, is proving very popular. Um, and also my schedule of uh, when I'm giving talks and, and so on. Um, Anyway, there's a huge amount of material there on the website for anyone who's interested. It's all free. And um, I hope that anyone who wants to follow this up will go to the website and explore it for themselves. Splendid. Well, once again, Rupert, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you.